This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 49, The Battle of the Milvian Bridge. The citizens of Rome overthrew their Etruscan monarchy late in the 6th century BCE. And then they would proceed to document the origin of their great city by claiming it to be founded by Romulus during the 8th century BCE. But we can feel confident that a settlement existed here from before this time and certainly we believe it could have been continuously occupied since the second millennium BCE. We can even suggest settlement among the seven hills of Rome many thousands of years before classical Rome, but it might not have been continuous. If we consider that the hills of Rome would have provided a good defensible position on the Tiber River, then we can have a good understanding about why this was an attractive location for a settlement. Cultural influences would have come from multiple sources, with the Italic Latins having settled the area around Rome in the centuries preceding its suggestive foundation, coupled with the migration of the Etruscans southwards into the area and the scattered appearances of Greek migrants in and around the lands of the Tyrrhenian Sea. With the emergence of interpretable script, we can obtain more clues about the nature of Rome as it broke away from the shackles of Etruscan dominance and started to carve out its own identity, firstly by gaining influence over the neighbouring Latin settlements before pushing back against the Etruscans. Although its road to becoming the dominant city that we know it to have become was not totally smooth. Rome was sacked by the Gauls during the 4th century BCE, but survived this sacking to come back stronger with consideration for the defences of the city being taken seriously with the building of improved fortifications. Rome would then gradually expand its influence over more and more land, and especially so when more powerful entities such as the Epirates invaded the Italian peninsula. In defending the land of the Italian peninsula, Rome would end up occupying and gaining direct influence over all of the societies of the Italian peninsula, which would bring them into conflict with the other great empire of the western Mediterranean, the Carthaginians. Most of the 3rd century BCE meant that the Roman Republic would spend a lot of time fighting international wars. In the latter half of the century, there would be intense wars with the Carthaginians. During these Punic Wars, Hannibal Barca would famously cross the Alps and invade the Italian peninsula from the north, but would become stranded there when the Romans started gaining the upper hand. So Hannibal's younger brother, 
Hastrobal Barker would attempt to reach Hannibal by crossing the Alps himself, but he would come up against the armies of the Roman consuls, Marcus Livius and Gaius Claudius Nero, and the culmination was the Battle of the Metaurus. It was a decisive victory for the Romans, with Hastrobal being killed in battle. Gaius Claudius Nero would return to Rome and build a crossing across the river Tiber to the north of the city of Rome, and this is our first known instance of a crossing at the Milvian Bridge. The Roman Empire As we are already aware from our long journey through Roman history, Rome defeated Carthage and then embarked on a remarkable phase of imperial expansion by consolidating the lands of the former Carthaginian Empire in Hispania and North Africa. From there, the Romans would head east and defeat the Macedonians, allowing them to gain a strong foothold in the Balkan Peninsula, meaning that it would only be a matter of time before all the lands of Greece and its peninsula fell under Roman rule. As Rome expanded its imperial reach, it would have to continually reform in order to be able to cope with all of the new pressures that came upon it by these incredible changes. A man called Gaius Marius made some important military reforms that enabled future Roman commanders a lot of opportunity and resource to be able to succeed on further campaigns. This undoubtedly helped Lucullus and Pompey to gain military successes in Asia and Julius Caesar to gain military successes in Gaul, thus further expanding the reach of the empire. With Octavian's conquest of Egypt and his acceptance of the position of the first citizen of Rome, alternatively the first instance of an emperor of Rome, he would rule under the name Augustus. The kingdom of Judea had already come under the influence of the Romans during their late Republic years conquests, but it would be a province at the start of the first century CE and this would turn out to be significant from a religious perspective because of course this is the time when Jesus Christ was alive. The Romans would have installed a governor or a prefect to preside over the province. It would be the fifth man to perform this duty from the year 26 who would be Pontius Pilatus and he would be responsible for the final trial of Jesus Christ. Jesus was ordered to be executed by crucifixion after he had upset the Jewish church leaders with his radical ideas and so the story of Christianity begins. The Christian Church Christianity within the Roman Empire was not taken very seriously at all by the Romans initially. The Christian Church containing those Jewish followers who believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God became an offshoot and a religious adversary to the Jewish Church. Rome itself had its own religious observances with their beliefs of a pantheon of gods with Jupiter at the forefront. Both Jews and Christians 
believed in the same God. But Christians believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and this belief was contrary to Jewish beliefs. So according to the New Testament, a Roman called Paul was persecuting Christians until he travelled to Damascus, the city in the modern country of Syria, and saw a vision of Jesus Christ while en route. From that moment, Paul decided to switch his life direction and act as an apostle of Jesus, spreading the word of Christianity throughout the eastern lands of the Roman Empire. Paul then travelled to Rome during the reign of Emperor Nero, which we covered back in episode 42. He may have been in Rome when the fire during the year 64 took place, and it seems that he was killed in the aftermath and possibly during the documented persecution of the Christians by Emperor Nero as a punishment for their role in starting the fire. Although it is suspected that Nero himself started the fire and simply blamed the Christians because they were an easy target and they were now distinct from Jews who had a degree of legal protection according to the Roman constitution. Christian persecution could often be a convenience for particular Roman statesmen following the fire of Rome. If local governors were looking for something or someone to blame for misfortune, then blaming the local Christians could be a good direction to point in should the governor want to defect blame from himself. Often Christian loyalty would be tested by the traditional Roman demand of making sacrifices for the Roman emperor or the Roman gods. Any refusal and punishment was likely to follow but this would have been the Roman test to anybody really, not just the Christians. Certainly some of the religious practices of Greek lands were very unlike traditional Roman religion as well, so the entirety of the Roman Empire would have been highly diverse religiously. After Nero's famous persecution of the Christians in the first century, there are no notable large persecutions until we reach the chaos of the third century. This is a time when emperors were continually being assassinated and the misfortune of the Roman Empire was being blamed on anybody who did not want to make the necessary observances or sacrifices to the Roman pantheon. The most well-known persecution of this period was that conducted during the reign of Emperor Diocletian. Diocletian believed that a more autocratic style of rule was necessary to restore order to the Roman Empire and this would include the promotion of traditional Roman religion, which meant the suppression of other beliefs, especially those beliefs that did not have the legal protection that Judaism enjoyed within the Roman Empire. This would include Christianity. Both Diocletian and his Caesar, the successor Galerius, actively supported the persecution of Christians. In 305, Diocletian retired and Galerius continued the persecution. It would not be until the year 311 that it seems that Galerius had a mysterious crisis of conscience when he issued an edict allowing Christians the freedom of worship and it would be in the same year that Galerius died. Constantine 
Constantine was the son of an important military commander called Constantius Chlorus, and he was born in the early 280s. His mother was a woman called Helena, and she may or may not have actually been married to Constantius Chlorus, but we do believe that she was indeed a Christian woman born in Bithynia, in the Asian lands of the Roman Empire. It is possible that his military career led Constantius Chlorus to support Diocletian in his battle to become the Roman Emperor before Diocletian took to the battlefield against Carinus at the Battle of the Margus in 285. It would be due to his favour that Constantius would receive the opportunity to govern over some of the lands of the Roman Emperor as a junior emperor of Britannia and Gaul in 293. In order to secure Constantius's loyalty, Diocletian would keep his adolescent son Constantine at his court in Nicomedia in Asia Minor. There, Constantine would receive a good education in a culturally diverse city, including followers of the Christian faith. When Constantine came of age, he would be sent on military campaigns on the Danube front and in Mesopotamia. He was somewhat of a silent entity during Diocletian's persecution of the Christians, with no strong account of him being actively for or against it, despite him being a member of the Roman royal court. When Diocletian was approaching his retirement, some might have expected Constantine to have been in the mix when it came to the announcement of new Caesars, as the existing ones were due to be promoted to become the new Augusti. However, Constantine was not selected, and it was feared that the existing Caesar, Galerius, may have viewed Constantine as a threat to the stability of the Tetrarchy because of this. So Constantius called for his son Constantine to join him in the west in order to preserve his safety. Both Constantius and Constantine campaigned as father and son against the Picts who lived beyond Hadrian's Wall in the north of Britannia. This did not last long because Constantius fell ill and died the following year. And Constantius's army declared that his son, Constantine, was their new emperor. Constantine therefore declared himself as the new emperor and Galerius begrudgingly recognised him to avoid internal conflict, although he did acknowledge him only as a Caesar. Maxentius Maxentius's early life is not completely dissimilar to that of Constantine in that he came of age during a period in which his father was an emperor of the Roman Empire. His father was Maximian, who ruled the Western Empire at the same time as Diocletian in the East. Maxentius's mother was a Syrian woman called Eutropia, so both Maxentius's and Constantine's mothers came from the Asiatic lands of the empire. There is very little record of Maxentius having a documented military career, which is something we have been able to track in relation to Constantine. It would be somewhat surprising though if we consider that Maximian was likely to have been preparing 
Maxentius to be his successor, so military experience would have surely have been important. However, if it is true that Maxentius had little or no military experience when his father Maximian was urged to retire from office alongside Diocletian, this may have come into the conversation when Diocletian's successor Galerius overlooked him when determining who should take control of Italy in the aftermath of the reign of Maximian. Galerius would go for Valerius Severus as the man to lead Rome and Maxentius was somewhat disappointed as it appeared that he had been groomed to take over from his father and he would have believed that it was his rightful destiny. Valerius Severus was not particularly popular as the new emperor which was fortunate for Maxentius because thanks to the fact that he could call upon his father's military resources he would have believed that he could take advantage of the situation and with the support of the Praetorian Guard in Rome who feared that they could be disbanded under Valerius Severus. So Maxentius was allowed to enter Rome while Valerius Severus was in Mediolanum, which is the modern city of Milan. There, Maxentius would declare himself princeps, but now a dangerous precedent was being set. Neither Constantine or Maxentius had been officially given a role as emperor, and there was a danger of the main authority, that of Galerius, being undermined. With Constantine in Britannia and having the full support of his father's army, Galerius decided not to act against him. Galerius did encourage Valerius Severus to try to retake Rome using military means. However, with Maxentius now already comfortably in Rome and well supported, this was always going to be a tall order. Even though Severus had a large army, some of them would actually defect to Maxentius and Severus's invasion was ultimately unsuccessful. Much of the military would have been buoyed by the fact that their trusted old ruler Maximian had returned to Rome in support of his son. It would be Maximian who would finish Severus off after pursuing him back to the north. Severus's failure meant that Galerius would have to take matters into his own hands and run this usurper out of Rome. However, when Galerius tried to approach Rome, some of his troops would defect to the attractiveness of serving under Maxentius, and Galerius was forced to withdraw and go back eastwards to Nicomedia. Maxentius knew that Galerius would return. So Maxentius would feel out the possibility of a political alliance with Constantine in order to intimidate Galerius into staying put and not returning west again. Constantine would accept the hand in marriage of Maxentius's sister and Maximian would travel north to oversee Constantine's marriage to his daughter. However, Constantine would not declare himself an enemy of Galerius, which is likely what Maxentius was hoping for. Things would begin to deteriorate for Maxentius. He fell out with his father Maximian who would flee Rome and head back to Constantine, where he would actually try to usurp Constantine. Fortunately though for Constantine, he was equal to this and prevented it from happening. Constantine pursued his father-in-law to Missilia, modern Marseille, where he would besiege the city before being allowed 
to enter. Maximian committed suicide. With no trusted alliance with Constantine and his resource-rich North African provinces deserting him, Maxentius would desperately strike up an alliance with Maximinus Dyer, the Caesar of the eastern half of the empire. With Galerius's health failing him, his role as Augustus in the east would fall on the shoulders of Licinius, someone who Constantine kept a good relationship with. Maxentius was losing the faith of his people and he could see that Constantine had little confidence in him too, so he would actively prepare for a military conflict with Constantine as he knew that Licinius was currently too busy to become involved. If Constantine was going to be dealt with, it had to be now. Prelude to the Battle With Maxentius plotting against him and various factions in Italy trying to encourage Constantine to depose Maxentius, Constantine would not waste time and in typical fashion for him, he would meet the challenge head on and without delay. With a force of maybe around 40,000 men, Constantine would head to Italy to snuff out Maxentius before he could get any kind of momentum in reverse. Maxentius would not lead any army to do battle himself. He would let his Praetorian prefect, Ruricius Pompeianus, take that honour. Before engaging with Pompeianus, Constantine would have to cross the Alps and he would do so at the city of Segusium, the modern Italian city of Susa. He would have to besiege the city but eventually it did fall to him. He would then move on to the city of Augusta Taurinorum, modern Turin, where he would meet a Maxentian army containing heavily armoured cavalry. The lighter cavalry of Constantine outpaced the Maxentian cavalry and defeated them. Constantine was careful not to unnecessarily punish or loot the cities which fell before him and this gained him the favour of many North Italian peoples and cities such as Mediolanum, modern Milan. Constantine would score another victory at Brixia, modern Brescia, before meeting with the Praetorian prefect Pompeianus at the Battle of Verona. Pompeianus would move to prevent Constantine approaching the city, but Constantine was able to push Pompeianus's army back within the city of Verona. Pompeianus would send for more troops in order to bring the attack back to Constantine, but Constantine showed fearless aggression and Pompeianus was killed in the exchanges. This was a disaster for Maxentius. He had lost his Praetorian prefect and he had now lost northern Italy with the fall of the strategically important city of Verona. He knew now that Constantine would attempt to march on Rome and so Maxentius headed north of the city to the crossing over the Tiber River that we know today as the Milvian Bridge. He would destroy the stone construction that bridged the river to prevent Constantine from crossing. Maxentius still believed that his best chance of victory would be in open battle, so he would build a temporary pontoon bridge at the same spot to enable his army to cross to the north and do battle. 
The Battle of the Milvian Bridge Constantine marched southwards in the direction of Rome and more and more people were joining the Constantinian cause which may have bolstered Constantine's numbers back up to around 50,000 soldiers. Maxentius had lost his great commander Pompeianus and we have no real way of knowing how the rebellion of the African provinces had affected the food supply to Rome and whether this contributed to the decision of Maxentius to not wait to be put under siege as it had been the case with both Severus and Galerius when they attacked him. Maxentius had a large force and he led them across the pontoon to an area called Saxarubra, which is still Saxarubra now. The Maxentian army still contained the heavy cavalry that had been defeated in the north of Italy and it included the Praetorian Guard who possibly wanted revenge for the death of the prefect Pompeianus. The historian Eusebius of Caesarea tells us that on the day before the battle, the 27th of October 312, Constantine saw a vision of a cross of light in the sky. Some have speculated that this was just a trick of the sun's light, but others, including Eusebius, tells us that this was part of a divine intervention. Alongside the cross may have been the Greek words and tautoi nika, which were recorded in Latin and loosely translates to state, with this sign you will conquer. According to another academic called Lactantius, Constantine then told his troops to paint the Cairo symbol on their shields. The Cairo symbol is an amalgamation of the first two Greek letters of Christ's name. In other words, it's a Christogram, which in this case was supposed to offer the protection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Whether or not this actually happened, we do know that Constantine was a successful battlefield commander and that he had scored some impressive military victories during his career. It is highly likely that Constantine's cavalry were utilised to good effect at the Milvian Bridge. When the two armies met, we believe that by the questionable and scant accounts that Constantine used his cavalry to bully the cavalry and flanks of the Maxentian army. This caused Maxentius's troops to attempt to flee back across the river to the safety of Rome. Unfortunately, the pontoon bridge was simply not sturdy enough to support the weight of troops attempting to use it. The Praetorian guards stood their ground, but were slain where they stood. Maxentius himself ended up in the river Tiber. The weight of Maxentius's armour left him helpless in the river. He could not recover and he drowned. When Constantine recovered Maxentius's body from the river, it was decapitated. The head was placed on the end of a lance and Constantine continued onwards to the city of Rome with the head paraded high of the defeated emperor. Aftermath 
Constantine was now in control of the West and his political bond with Licinius in the East meant that it was only a matter of time now before all other emperors would be put down as Constantine and Licinius took full control of the entire empire. Constantine's victory at Rome was considerably impressive considering his military and strategy seemingly being the best of all the emperors of his time. I know that Eusebius would like to claim that it was divine guidance that led him to victory at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, but I do think that this takes away from the personal capabilities of the man himself. It is suggested that the percentage of the population of the Roman Empire who considered themselves to be Christian was actually around 10%, which may not sound like a lot, but when we consider how Christianity originated and how the more recent emperors had actively persecuted them, this is a large number, especially in a traditionally pagan society. Licinius and Constantine may have met near the city of Mediolanum to agree on a policy which would promise religious tolerance to the empire, so that if you were not a Roman pagan, then you could not be made to suffer as a consequence of your beliefs. This was the Edict of Milan from the year 313, and it would effectively disallow Christian persecution, which is why it is cited as important in the timeline of Christianity. We must be very careful to stress that this edict was not an edict specifically regarding Christianity as it had been mistaken as an edict which turned the Roman Empire into a Christian Empire. We are still many decades from that point. It may have been the influence of his own mother that made Constantine appear to be pro-Christian and a number of his actions were geared towards making the lives of Christians easier within the Roman Empire. To appease the differing doctrines that were branching off from one another among Christians, Constantine would summon a council of Christian bishops to a meeting at Nicaea in Asia Minor to agree on the fundamentals of Christianity in a bid to standardise it, to prevent it from becoming an enemy of itself. This would become the Nicene Creed, an important Christian document. It is this fragmentation of Christianity within the Roman Empire at the time which made Constantine reluctant to be baptised until he was gravely ill at the age of 65 in the year 337. To be baptised by the wrong Christian priest beforehand may have upset other Christian denominations within the empire, so it was sensible to be prudent. However, with death looming, Constantine decided to act and was baptised by a pro-Aryan Christian bishop. It appears that Constantine was considered and measured in his approach to the promotion of Christianity. He did not change the religion of the Roman Empire to Christianity. If he had done that, it is likely that he would have been assassinated. Even though Christianity is a religion that essentially encourages its followers to spread the word of Jesus, Constantine knew that he had to tread carefully. And we can honestly say that he made being a Christian within the Roman Empire a much more pleasurable and safe experience, 
and he would have given Christians within the empire a much better chance to spread the word throughout the empire and gradually attract more followers. Thank you very much for listening to this week's podcast. It's probably a very important podcast in terms of exploring a connection between many cultural aspects of um, certainly the modern world and the classical world or what was turned into the medieval world. So it really is um, a bit of a crossroads of different things this week. Something that's very, very important that we had to explore in more detail and hopefully we've dispelled some of the urban myths surrounding this uh, this event, the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, which uh, often we can um, we can hear that Constantine turned Roman uh, the Roman Empire into a Christian Empire, and hopefully we've we've set the record straight there that this is not the case, but that uh, Constantine did represent Christianity. But um, he was in no position to force it on the empire, and, and we explored the reasons why. However, the Battle of the Milvian Bridge has been um, targeted by writers um, who have, have basically said that this is the moment that Constantine uh, turned into a, a Christian um, apostle, if you like. And really, it's probably a bit over the top. Um, you know, there's certain people say that Constantine did see visions of, of many things during his life or some people are trying to say it was a trick of the light of the sun that, that, that they thought it was a cross. I, I might even believe that it could have been made up altogether, you know, like, who knows? We, we really don't know. None of us were there. But it's interesting to explore the possibilities of the story and uh, try and educate ourselves. And now you can each individually formulate your own opinion about what happened and and what impact it had on human history. Rumbling towards the end of the Roman episodes and also towards the end of 2020, so uh, the two things will coincide somewhat. Uh, What a year it's been. This uh, this year it's going to become a podcast episode of its own, isn't it, that we're going to have to cover at some point a few years down the line when we get to uh, the end of Volume 7. This year is going to be a podcast episode so we're making history as we as we speak and I was I was musing over this myself and I thought is this the most important uh, year uh, in global history since perhaps the end of the second world war and I'm trying to think of events that uh, maybe compared to it maybe we could talk about the Cuban missile crisis or even the fall of the Berlin Wall that kind of thing um, any other things that you might think have had such a global impact as 2020 has had, uh, certainly since the Second World War? If you if you have an opinion or you can think of something that I haven't thought of, then, yeah, certainly drop me a line. I'd be very interested to read it out. As ever, if you want to support the podcast, you can. Um, if you go to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website, you'll be able to do a bit of exploring there. I think uh, the website's probably um, due a little bit of a revamp, actually. I've had a little click around it, and there's so much going on there. It probably needs reorganising, but there's so much to see and and play about with. Um, Videos, links to 
helpful educational websites, um, a bibliography that shows the books that I've used in order to present the podcast. Um, we've got social media events and platforms that we're, we're currently on and um, also uh, chat groups that you can come and join in a discussion about um, you know many aspects of history, even contribute uh, one of your own. We'd, we'd love to hear from you. We really enjoy, like the people who, uh, who listen to this podcast are enthusiastic about history. They're just like you. Um, so um, if you want to engage with these people and explore subjects, I'm sure they'd be absolutely thrilled to hear from you and, and all too keen to give you their own opinion. Um, otherwise, um, going back to what I was saying about supporting the podcast, you can click on the Patreon link and you can sign up to make a monthly contribution for as little as $1 a month. And when you accumulate particular levels of um, donations over, over any length of time, it doesn't matter how long it takes, you can qualify for a, a gifts and rewards such as you can have questions answered on the podcast and even those high rollers they can even commission a podcast on the subject of their own choice and we've already done it we've already done it for uh, a couple of individuals so that's uh, that's what i give to you as a thank you for your contributions and uh, if you can't um, afford to make a contribution that's fine don't forget to rate and review the podcast rating and reviewing really does help to propel the project into the consciousness of more and more people another thing i'm highly grateful for is when people drop me a line and um, i like to read the messages out that i received i received a message from a young lady called ariana I recently started listening to your podcast and I absolutely love it. I love history, but it is hard for me to stay on track since my mind tends to wander a lot. You're exactly like me. Exactly like me. Your accent and storytelling ability makes me stay focused better. You sound like Bricktop from the, from the movie Snatch. That's how I pictured you until you posted the pic of your T-shirt. Yeah, well, now you can see how good looking I am. Just today, I managed to catch up, started about two months ago, been listening to you at 1.2 speed. Yeah, well, you're not the first person to have said that. Your podcast has given me new knowledge that I was not aware of. Things that have been taught to me back when I attended school and seem to be obsolete or incorrect now. Absolutely fascinating stuff. I wish I could become a patron, but right now it's impossible for me. I think what you do and how you present it deserves a stable and huge income. Well, thank you very much. So do I. So do I. I'd love that. Uh, please keep it up. I look forward to listening to all your episodes sincerely. Um, I will say this. I'll, you know, I wish she says that she wishes she could become a patron, but right now it's not possible. Uh, well, so many of you will be going through a similar thing at the moment. This year's been hard, and um, I'm I'm grateful for for the small amount of pennies that those people who make that sacrifice do give to the project in order to support it. is is It's so generous for you to actually surrender your personal money to the project and, and I'm really grateful and you know if 
I, I can't I can't thank you enough and for those of you who cannot afford to become a patron you're still very much a big part of the History of the World podcast family and you're you're welcome to stay and enjoy the project for as long as you like without paying a single penny or a single cent um, that the reason why this project was started was not for financial reasons and any financial gain that I might get from it is just a bonus to be quite honest I'm really not in it for the money um, but uh, listen if it ends up being a vocation of sorts um, I'll be I'll be thrilled but for the meantime really it's just about enjoying history and if you want to enjoy the podcast don't feel guilty if you can't contribute it's really not about that at all thank you for such a lovely message any area uh, ariana um message anytime you're more than welcome one of our patrons lynn dowling um who uh, as a patron is now a lifelong member of the history of the world podcast illuminati which is a an honor bestowed on anyone who has made a financial contribution, no matter how big or small. Lynn has asked a question because she's entitled to do that, because she's qualified for that entitlement. And um, we're going to try and tackle that one next week. So we're going to have another question answered at the end of the episode next week. It's always fascinating because we just, it's uh, the part of the show that's a little bit unpredictable. We never really know what we're going to be talking about. So a little bolt on to next week's episode. So that should be... Uh, another thing to look forward to let's have a look at the reviews let's see what's going on in in the world of the reviews uh apple podcasts always a great place to go uh nath james uh from uh, australia has put history of the world fantastic podcast love listening about our history should be on the school curriculum thank you yeah history should be on the school curriculum i, I agree with that uh, nath james um, uh, Pinong E from Canada has put History of the World Volume 1 Episodes 1 to 16 um, in, well, I don't, yeah that's good uh, very informative well organised keep it up Chris H um, but he's given it two stars so like it was like a complimentary review but like only two stars but uh, listen uh, like two stars better than none so I'll, I'll take them Um I'm not sure why um, he's uh, specifically gone volume 1, episodes 1 to 16. I don't know, what's wrong with 17? I think 17 might have been the one where I got my uh, sciences very mi- very much mixed up and and I've felt like a fool ever since. But it might be, um, if, there's, if there's a bit of time on the horizon, I might be able to start re-recording more volume 1 episodes. That would be nice. So I listened to one or two the other day and I realised... Like how bad they were compared as the more recent ones, like in terms of uh, my diction and and the pace of my the pace of my storytelling. I didn't think it was too good when I listened back to them. But I suppose um, I suppose if you keep doing something, you're going to naturally improve, aren't you? So um, I won't be too hard on myself. Now, if you're looking for something to do, why not come to the History of the World podcast discussion forum? Uh, just go to the website and click on interact and uh, we can go uh, there, there are, do you know what there's a great discussion about um, uh, what caused Neanderthal extinction 
and uh, and a few of you have got involved and uh, a new member to the forum JLo has put um, I watched a documentary a while back and it said that when Homo sapiens and Neanderthals met the Neanderthals were already in trouble their birth rate was slow and their population was already diminishing more than likely to me it seems we bred with them and as obvious with remnants of Neanderthal DNA with some modern day humans and I think we outbred them because we gave birth faster and we used di energy differently so it took less resources to get through a quicker gestation period. That makes a lot of sense Jayla, I really like that one. But he's also posed another question who's, uh, I'll say he, um, it could be a she, I don't, I'm not sure. Um, and uh, has put, uh, with the holidays quickly approaching at the time of my writing, uh, this is where my brain goes along the lines of when did people first start celebrating holidays? How far back can we trace celebrating things? Things like birthdays, life milestones, cycle of the year, etc. If you have any idea, and uh, this goes out to anyone and everyone, if you've got any idea come to the history of the world podcast discussion forum and let us know let us know if you know the answer to that or you know anything that might be related to the answer it's um something that i'd really like to see more and more people getting involved in is this discussion forum it's the place to be if you if you if you're not here you're not cool let's let's put it that way Shane Smith, an old friend of the podcast, has been back in touch again. But what a year this has been. Hope you're doing well over there. Uh, so I've spent the, the less uh, year... Ooh, I don't know, I can't read that well. Uh, listening to other people's podcasts. Being a truck driver, I like to binge listen. Waiting for yours uh, to stack up. i just got to say, man, there is a ton of garbage history podcasts out there. Some have good info. But they're inundated with so much other fluff to fill time and space, or they skim so quickly over the subjects that you're left wondering what the point was. I'm hoping to go to do a Nordic vacation in April, providing COVID lets me, and have been listening to a lot of Viking, Irish, and Scottish podcasts. I'm back on yours. I'm glad to see that you're keeping your solid delivery of facts and information in a format that us laymen can digest and retain info from. Um, Thanks, Shane. Yeah, I'm, well, that's always been the name of the game for me, just to try and keep it simple and digestible. And uh, how fantastic. A Nordic vacation. So much rich history. So much brilliant medieval history. Viking, Irish, Scottish. Like, if I'll tell you what, if you're in other parts of the world, you might not know all that much about um, North Northwest Europe uh, and its history, but it's... Uh, it's just an absolute binge fest. If you if you get involved in it, you just can't get enough of it. So I'm I'm really glad it's um that kind of thing's entertaining you, Shane. Long may it do so. Well, that is just a, a a fraction of the people that have interacted with the podcast, and I, and I'm really sorry that I can't always get round to thanking you all individually i know jenna osborne has been extremely active in sending me um bits and pieces and uh, and i'm sharing them as much as possible on the social media pages so that we can all enjoy them together um so you know by all means if you if you've got something you want to share with me uh, just be aware that i'll share it with everyone because <laughs> that's what it's all about it's not really about entertaining me it's about entertaining everyone so um, so it will be shared with the community 
Um, but thank you so much for those of you who do take the time to do that. And I'm sorry that I haven't thanked you all individually. I really do appreciate it. And uh, don't forget that. So to anyone who sent me a message, if I haven't read it out, um, it's not intentional. I really apologise. It's really hard for me to keep up with everything. I'm on so many different channels at the moment that I receive messages from so many different angles. Uh, it's easy for me to miss them. So if I do miss your message and you really would like me to read it out, just uh, pop me a reminder. Just tell me off. I'm happy for you to tell me off and, and I'll be very, very willing and uh, able to read the message out. Anyway, that's it for this week. Um, next week, we're going to be looking at the aftermath of all of this, all of this reign of Constantine, the move of the Roman capital to Constantinople, and ultimately what happened to Rome and Italy. Um, we're looking towards the end of Rome as a, as a national, or as, as I say, as an international uh, city of force, um, when all the power goes east, what happens in the end? What happens to this vast empire? We're going to watch it fall apart. Anyway, that's for next week. Uh, for this week, that's it. Thank you very much for listening. And I uh, hope you have a, a safe and uh, a good week. And until next week, just make sure to be good. Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? then visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. You can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. The best ones will be read out. Be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us.